six. It's a it's a passage of scripture that I'm sure we've all wrestled with to some degree. It's a passage that's probably my number one passage that I've wrestled with for many years, off and on, trying to reconcile it with different views that I have that don't seem to fit together. And so I I actually requested chapter six because I wanted to. Uh, induce myself to wrestle with this even more. So what I have to share tonight is probably not going to satisfy everyone's point of wrestling, but I'm going to share the where the Lord has taken me. But before we do, I just want to do a quick review. It's as the background to this, and maybe I'll just ask Dan to this quick review. Maybe you could uh, give us I want to just pop through this. I don't want to spend much time on it because I want to get, I have other things to share. So, who authored it, Dan? Uh, uncertain. Some say Paul, some say Apollos, some say others, but um, un uncertain. Uncertain. That's the way it remains, uncertain. <clears throat> and uh, to whom was it written? It was written to the Hebrews, to, so to a Jewish population. Can you guys hear Dan's answers? Okay. To a Jewish, a local Jewish congregation. Um, and when was it written? Uh, uh, can't remember. Can't remember. Before 70 AD. Before 70 AD, because that's the date that the temple was destroyed. And clearly, after Jesus was here died and rose again, so some somewhere between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., and we know that they um, uh, had gone through persecution, which comes a little bit later, so it's most people place it somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D., so persecution had begun, and, we, and you might recall that the way the early Christians were not seen as a separate religion, they were seen as a sect of Judaism. So it took a while before this became clear and distributed and they started receiving persecution. But this group had already encountered some persecution and were facing more persecution. That sort of answers question four. So question five was, uh, what's the central message? What would you say the central message of the sermon or the book is? That's another Dan question. Uh, the superiority of Christ. Christ is better than. The superiority of Christ, Christ is better than, the new covenants and its promises and its high priests, uh, all of these things are superior to the old. Um, why do people refer to the book of Hebrews as sermon, as a sermon and others a letter? It's an, it's an extra credit question. Okay. Some people say it's a sermon, some people say it's a letter. Well, it doesn't, it, I'm guessing, but I'm saying they, they might call it a sermon because it doesn't have the characteristics of Paul's letters. Typically in his letters he says Paul to the recipients, so, so and, and this doesn't have that. It's, it starts off sort of, you know, in the flow, um, and yet it has the greetings at the end to people that were common to, to uh, Paul's world and others' world, and uh, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's part of it. 
Yeah, that's it. Doesn't have the characteristic to who it was written and who it was written by, which is very characteristic of the way they did letters back then. We always sign our name at the end, but they usually presented their name in the beginning. Paul was, you know, saw this in all Paul's letters, with the exception of this one, if it was authored by Paul. But it starts right in like a treatise. It starts in with a logical development of the superiority of Jesus. So it's, some people think that it was a sermon or maybe even something that someone presented when they had a chance in the synagogue before they were kicked out of the synagogue. Okay, uh, I want to just go to the introduction. Uh, falling away from the faith. Uh, tonight we'll be considering Hebrews, the sixth chapter. And this chapter contains the third of five warnings. There's five warnings in Hebrew. Some of them are more severe. This is one of the more, what I would call severe. This in chapter 10 also. The first one starts out with don't drift away. So we go from drifting to willful disobedience. Mm -hmm. And so you see a progression uh, in some of the warnings. And so probably to a local congregation, he's talking to a group of people, probably some people were drifting Others were further along. So it's not like he's talking to a person. He's talking to a congregation. Um, number two, the situation. The recipients of the book of Hebrews were a local congregation of mostly Jewish believers who were discouraged because they were enduring persecution for their faith in Jesus. Facing the prospect of continued persecution was pressuring them to return to Judaism. Firstly, the returning to Judaism would nullify the persecution from the religious Jews, and that was a big thing. I mean, remember Paul. Paul was one of the first out of the blocks to go persecuting the Christians. And secondly, it would protect them from persecution by the Romans because Judaism was protected religion under the Roman government. So as long as they stayed under the cloak of Judaism, these believers would be tempted to try to escape persecution because the Roman government had, they, the Jewish people were under the Roman rule and they allowed Judaism to continue. That's part of what Rome did when they captured people. Or, and so they, they could escape both of that, both of those reasons, other Jews and the Romans. So, um, and the other thing about it is um, the, the congregation was immature. We're gonna get to that a little bit, but being immature in their faith, <clears throat> immature in their understanding they might not realize fully the the vast difference because some of the some of the things in Christianity are built on um, uh, what they would have seen and known in Judaism. So they would be a little more fuzzy. They didn't see the distinction clearly. And so this is what the book of Hebrews is being written for, these immature believers who are being tempted to go back. And maybe they didn't see a big difference because they felt like they were saved you know, if they followed the law of God, so they might be tempted because that was safer. So the author is making sure they understand clearly, and so he's advancing this, this argument or this presentation of the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of the Old Testament. But I, I was distracted a little bit. Did you just say that um, some of them might think, what, what's the big deal? Is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying why that. Why not just go back to Judaism and embrace Christ? Yeah, I, I, I think this is the, one of the foundational reasons why he's writing is because we'll see later on that these people were immature in their faith. And so he, he talks about some elementary principles, and when you look at them, 
they're all not all that many differences, and so they'd be tempted to think, well, this is a big deal of persecution, and maybe it's not a big deal if I shift back under the cloak of Judaism. Yeah, they're emerging in time. You know, the way it was considered a sect of Judaism because it wasn't even clear in the beginning to the Jews how different this was. And so he's making a case clearly to show that it is different on so many levels. So he's clarifying for them and advancing their understanding of how Judaism and Christianity and following Jesus is so vastly different. So point four, I'm a, if, you're, if you're reading along with me, what is therefore, therefore? In chapter six begins with a therefore, so we're actually going to begin in part of chapter five uh, because it, it's the part that's included in the therefore. So let's go ahead and read this. Um, I'll read it just because it's, I think, easier. Just follow along with me. I've, I've made a few things in red on your notes if they're coming through, um, basically just some key points that we'll come back to. Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. I'll just pause there and say he's, it's interesting that chapter 6 falls in, right in the middle of an extended teaching on Melchizedek. It's probably no small thing when he gets to trying to write about Melchizedek and he's like, oh, these guys are, these, these guys should be teachers, but they're not. But So right in the middle of what I think is one of the hardest teaching is who is Melchizedek and the priesthood and all that. Chapter 6 is set right in the middle of the end of chapter 5 where he ends off on Melchizedek and when he picks up in chapter 7, it's continuing on with Melchizedek. All right, let me start over. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Chapter 6. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites. And notice the words, cleansing rites. This, they'd be familiar with that from Judaism. It's not, he's not explicitly talking about the things that we would say in the New Testament, but he's even using words that are more of Judaism. Mm -hmm. And acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God is permitting, God, and God permitting we will do so. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again 
and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop of use and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown to him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that, you, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things <clears throat> in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope in God's promises, I added that, sat before us <clears throat> may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So before I go on, <clears throat> I just wanted to have that scripture, read that scripture and have it in our minds. We're going to come back to it. But I have a little parenthetical pause here that I want to, I want to go through a couple of things. So tonight, um, the, first, the first part of what I want to talk about is how to approach an apparent conflict in scripture or how to approach a difficult scripture mm -hmm. because I think all of us wrestle with this and we will continue to wrestle with it so I wanted to just back up and put down some things with, that I've wrestled with um, and the second thing is to try to understand what this teaching meant to the, to the Jewish believers who received it whenever we take a scripture we have to remember that the scripture was written to an audience this scripture was written to this audience to address the problems they had. So the first and foremost job is to understand as best we can what it meant to them. Before we take into consideration, they would have read this out loud. And so they would have shared it, they would have memorized parts of it, and then they would have shared it with other local congregations. That was their pattern. So the first step, and the one that we're going to spend the most time on tonight, is what do we think this meant to the original audience? Before we tackle the second thing, which is almost always the scripture is controversial among theologians. And the issue, uh, let me just go to that next point. The, the first thing is to approach, how to approach apparent conflicts, point A, and point B, to try to understand what the teaching meant to the Jewish believers who received it. 
Um, the controversy, and I'm not going to really touch on this much tonight, the controversy under point under the point I there, how does this teaching fit with other scriptures in the Bible? This is the last step when we try to apply it to our lives. We have in our possession the full word of God. We have the full counsel of God, and God's word is consistent. So we have to look at how this fits with other things. But that's not the thing you bring in first. And part of my struggle when I was preparing for this, knowing that controversy, I found myself I found myself in the two camps trying to figure out, trying to figure out without first going to the book of Hebrews and looking what's within that book. Well, how did the author present his case? What surrounds chapter 6 before and after? So the controversy point two there is uh, deciding whether or not a person is eternally saved or whether they just look like believers but were not really saved. That's not the main point, but that is the main point of most discussions on chapter 6. This is a theological issue, right? It, it does. We have to wrestle with that. And people have. Greater minds than mine, by far, have wrestled with this. And greater minds come down on two sides of how they understand this. So I'm not attempting to resolve that controversy. Because it's not really the main point of Hebrews. The point of the writer of Hebrews, halfway down here, is to awaken the believers to become fervent and diligent, to persevere through trials, trusting that God will fulfill his promises to them just like he did the saints of old who persevered and inherited what God promised. If you look at chapter 6, uh, which we will, more than half of it is devoted to, how, to the proof that God will fulfill his promises to those who are faithful. There's only a small, the first part of it has to do with um, um, his warning. The last part is, be warned, but look, God has promised Abraham he, will, he has going to fulfill his promise to you as well. So we're going to leave most of the controversy aside. It will enter in in places, but most of the controversy, I'm not trying to resolve what theologians discuss. It would drive you crazy. But it's not as difficult to begin first, and with the place you have to begin anyway to resolve the conflict, is begin with what did it mean to the Hebrew people who received it? Before we go there, I have a little little test for you. I want you to, this is a little graphic of a box, and I want you to look at it and blink a few times, stare at it, just stare at it a minute and see if it changes orientation. Just stare at that box and blink a few times. Does it look like it changes from one direction to the other? Yeah. The, point, the point I'm making with this graphic is it's possible for our minds, our minds and other people's minds to interpret the exact set of facts and to see it oriented differently. And even our own minds do this. It's not just us and others, but even our own minds reorient this. And part of it is, part of the reason of that is that we're looking at, um, we're trying to perceive a three-dimensional object in two dimensions. It's a flat screen, but a box is a three-dimensional object. And uh, I believe that some of God's word is like that, that God's word is eternal, God's word is beyond us. He is other than us. He's bigger. You know, we can't conceive of the Trinity, really. We take one thing as true, 
the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Spirit is God. But can, do we have anything like that that we can point to? And so how we conceive of something really, we can look at the same set of facts and come away with a different perspective. And I think that's partly what's happening. We have, we have a truth here that is, uh, when you stare at it, it doesn't fit easily in a, two, in a two dimension. There's something about God's word, like the Trinity, that is sometimes beyond us. Now I'm not saying this is all beyond us and that God has given us things that we can't understand. That's not my point. But there are things about an eternal God who is other than us, who is greater than us, that we are not gonna always fathom in the moment, okay? So point B under there. All of God's word is true. It is internally consistent with itself. This we believe, this we know. So when it comes to a passage of scripture that appears to conflict with other scriptures, we look for ways to reconcile that apparent conflict. That's, it's appropriate that we do. That's the case in chapter six of Hebrews. When this happens, it causes us an internal tension. Some people call that cognitive dissonance. It causes a tension when we can't fit it into a good, clean mental box. By the way, that's what I think systematic theology attempts to do is to put things that have been written over thousands, you know, 1,500 years by 30 or 40 authors, to different cultures, by different authors, and yet we try in our time to fit that into a period that a conceptual, mm -hmm. logical framework that we can understand. So we're reducing all of this complexity into a systematic theology, and it doesn't always just fit like that. And so sometimes I think it behooves us to be content with the tension that's there, ask God for further, deeper understanding. And over time, as we individually mature, we will come to a fuller understanding over time. But there's some ways that, that people think of this, some shortcuts, and now I'm on the bottom of page what? Point I, what's that, Dan? What page is that? Uh, four? Three. Three. The boxes on three. So here's how we can think of it. I just list these and I'm not going to go into them much. We can ignore the tension and the intellectual discrepancy, and I call that intellectual laziness. That's just not taking the word of God seriously when you encounter conflict. But, but sometimes we just shove it off and listen to what somebody else said and just go with that, even if it conflicts. Or secondly, we can reject new truth and keep the old. That's also something that's it's very tempting to do. Usually a person adopts an interpretation of scripture that avoids this conflict. So instead of taking the merit of the new truth and trying to say, what does it mean? And really come to grips with it because that new truth conflicts with something. Sometimes we just kind of rush over and adopt a sub, uh, a viewpoint that is more consistent with other things we believe. That's not really wrestling with it either. Thirdly, we can reject the old one and keep the new. This requires the new truth to be really convincingly understood. And tonight, I don't think that my presentation is gonna convincingly change anybody's mind deeply, so I think people are still gonna to have to grapple with it. You might come to a place where you don't really agree with what I said, and you might have to grapple with that. How did he come to that conclusion? And fourthly, you can blend the old into the new into a coherent whole. This is something that 
takes work and effort to blend a new truth with the existing truths by going back and saying, well, maybe I re- here's where it conflicts, and so maybe I'll re-look at why I believe that and try to look at the new truth and blend it with our uh, existing body of beliefs that we hold. Um, this fifth one is where I've been for several years, um, and so I have a little more to say about that one. You can accept the new truth without rejecting the old. <laughs> An attempt and accept the internal tension then of, that the apparent conflict produces. This has been my situation with chapter 6 of Hebrews. I believe, when I read it, I believe I understand what it says, but it doesn't fit well with other things I believe, and so I've remained there holding two things and feeling a tension inside of not being able to reconcile this with other things I believe. And so um, that's really why I wanted to be forced to study this more deeply. and here's a couple things to keep in mind when we, if we accept this kind of internal tension when we're reconciling. We know from Scripture itself that God's ways are not our ways. And His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So it's possible that the eternal truths presented in Scripture are truly higher than our thoughts. There are possibly places. Uh, there are thoughts that we don't have, maybe we don't have the mental capacity to understand yet. It may be something God takes us to deeper maturity where we will, but there's, when we encounter scripture, the, the condition of our own understanding and our own heart sometimes don't allow us to fully comprehend deeper truths of God all at one time. There are thoughts that we, um, let's see, we are seeing in a glass darkly. You could think of it that way. That's also a scriptural truth that we don't see perfectly. So this, it means that we won't, might not see these perfectly now, but one day we will. So it's, it's okay, just like we hold on to the Trinity and believe that it's true, it's okay that we can't fully explain it. If the Word of God is teaching a truth that in fact is not easily reconciled with everything else, it's okay to hold that tension and just continue to ask the Lord to bring greater resolution. Um, And that's point two. The apparent conflict may be understood in the future as God brings greater maturity and more revelation. I think fasting and prayer bring clarity. When we come to these kind of things, fasting and prayer can help us gain greater clarity and hear from the Lord more clearly. And then remember that cube. Sometimes it might be the problem of trying to trying to view something that's a... We, a a three-dimensional object in two dimensions, or in this case, we might be trying to perceive a truth of God that is simply other than us, but it's no nonetheless true. So those are the those are the possibilities that I think. So let's go back to the passage now, and uh, let's look at the first point: what did it mean to the original recipients? What was the spiritual condition of the recipients? Let's look at. Let's go back in that on your notes there and look at um, verses eleven through fourteen of chapter five. Somebody can just read out. You might want to read that. Someone read that out loud for us, and just we'll be able to pick out. It's full of things that show their immaturity. 
Amy, would you do that? Sure. So, chapter 5, 11 through 14, right? Right. Uh, okay, so, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have, be, you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Thank you. So the author of Hebrews calls them dull of hearing, or dull of seeing maybe, or dull of understanding. And so he, this, can, this can also be applied to ourselves sometimes. We, don't, we are not fully mature. We're all growing. And so we can be, in a sense, a level of dullness that increases over time as our maturity increases. Um, I want to come back to dullness of hearing. But dullness of hearing can come from laziness of not really, not really being fervent and diligent in the Word of God. Um, it makes us unable or less able, let's say less able. Dull still means they were hearing something, but they weren't hearing with acuity. So is this a rebuke or a warning? How would you classify that? He describes them. It's not a trick question, just... Yeah, I think it's a rebuke. I would call it a rebuke. He hasn't warned them really. He's just saying this is your condition, and uh, in a in a way, it's it's the premise to what he's going to say next. Um, but he's telling them you really are unable to discern good and evil in a proper way. And the whole thing of Hebrews is to try to clarify something that they need to know. And he follows this up. Um, so what did the author say? What did he list? Did someone read 6, 1 through 3? This is the list of elementary teachings. Karen, would you read 1, th- one through 3? Sure. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. Okay, uh, some of the commentators that I looked at drew the attention to the fact that this looks similar to the basics of Judaism on the surface. That, in fact, the author intentionally probably lists things that are in words and whatever that are not that, they're not that distinct right here from Judaism. Many of the things they're, gonna, they're looking forward to Eternity. They're they're looking forward. Um, anyway, I don't want to say any more about that. But the Book of Hebrews, on the other hand, he's he's intentionally contrasting now. He's going to contrast in much detail Judaism and Christianity. So you can at least see that these elementary teachings that he would basically say these you have, but there's much more to understanding between Judaism and Christianity. So, let's go on to point C. Were the recipients believers or unbelievers? This is a point of contention among theologians, but just take this text without, without tell me what you think based on this text that the author was saying about these people. 
Who will read uh, four or four through six? Dan, would you read that? Uh, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Thank you. So do you, uh, do you think these people were believers? Would you think they are believers or not? Nicole, say they are? I yeah. think they are. Yeah? Okay, Nicole, thank you. How about others? Anybody, uh, what would you add, what would you add to that list, let's say, to say, oh, this would, this would make them a believer. What would you add? Is there anything you could find that you could add to that list? that it says it's impossible for them to come back again is what is hard. Yeah, that that for that, us to accept. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that, but I'm just I'm just want to look at I kind of want to just look at the description of these folks by the it author. It is impossible. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, do you think the people that he's writing to here do you think that he's writing do you think that he's uh, Perceiving them to be believers or, or not, based on what he says. Because of verse 9, he says, Beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you. So, to me, that's like, he has a more positive view of them than it sounding. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the thing of being a partaker in the Holy Spirit for example. Oh, okay. As a partaker that's, in the Holy Spirit. That's what, a big one. Yeah. That's a very big thing. If you saw if you read that in another book that didn't have this other warning or this other thing, uh, and someone said, Who is he writing to? Who would you then somebody says, Are they believers or not believers? Well that's a believer. Yeah. He he's listing things of experiencing and uh, and all and I don't have them listed here, the references, but this author who's writing this calls it we. He identifies himself with this group as well. We. All the way through the book, it's we, us, our. And so, like, in some places, he said, let us do this, let us do that. He's identifying with this group of people as fellow believers, in my opinion. That's my opinion. So this might be point one where you don't agree with that, and that's okay. Um, because it doesn't really detract from what he ends up telling them. Um, so what are a couple of the other things in there that are uh, ones that we think of? Partakers of the Holy Spirit's a big one. What are a couple of the other descriptors exper- that are experiential of a new life? Well, the way you asked the question before is like, what else would be a marker of a Christian that you would expect to see in this list that you don't see, and which I thought of well, baptism maybe, and participation in the Lord's uh, Supper, you know, the, the communion, for instance. Uh, those two things are conspicuous in their absence, but, but uh, I don't know if that's what you're... you're no, that's, 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 those are two things that are not present there. Um, anything else?
Well, it does say they've been enlightened. Enlightened. So, like, received revelation. Received revelation, and that's pretty. That's going to be important as we move on. Um, tasted the heavenly gift. Some people think that's salvation. Mm -hmm. Other people say that's the Holy Spirit. He goes on and says, partakers of the Holy Spirit. So, person could could receive light and reject it, right? I mean, a person could receive enlightenment from and being drawn, but reject. But a partaker, Peter tells us that we're participants in the divine nature. Yeah. And so, the question is, you know, this is the one, this is where the people debate a lot, this question. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not important, but people come down on different sides of this because of, because of other scriptures, they would say this, these people couldn't be. But, but you can see that they've been enlightened, they're, partic they've, they're partakers in the Holy Spirit, and they're experiencing gifts uh, and the power of the kingdom. So they're they're evidences and experiential evidences of something in the new life. Could we go that far? We could agree on that. Let me go back down to my notes here. Anybody want to, Connie or Nicole, you have any thought on that? Okay, let's move on. Um, I'm going to say, because of the identification of this author, who many places calls us we, us, our, that he's identifying with them as a fellow believer by his choice of those connectors. He doesn't say you, he doesn't say those of you, he doesn't externalize those who are not believing. He is basically saying we. And so we'll move on from that. <clears throat> Oh, is point five there. It's interesting. I'm going to paraphrase that. Oh, as far as I could tell, most commentators consider the recipients to have been predominantly Jewish believers, except when they come to chapter six. When they start parsing chapter six, then it becomes real fuzzy, and there's all kinds of explanations as to why they were not. And it's kind of interesting, because if you ask people in an overview, you look at an overview of, of Hebrews, most will say that it's written to... Jewish believers. But chapter 6 is a difficult one because of the conflict with other things. And we cannot, it's impossible for us right now, sitting here studying this, it's impossible for us to divorce our thinking from our pre-existing thoughts of what it means to be a believer. When we hit that word impossible, uh, it, it causes all kinds of, well, maybe that doesn't mean that they're believers. And so that's the tension that we're struggling with. Let's go to D. The author identifies himself as one of the group, of this group. He says, we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us that we may be greatly encouraged. And, and uh, then he also says, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. So he's saying, we, 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 all right? I'm just, and there's 36 times in this book that we is used, 26 us, 14 our. So it's clear that the author is identifying himself as one of them. And he says nothing. Uh, let's go on to key words. Point E. I want to, yeah, wow. 
Time's gone. Dull of hearing. Slothfulness brings about this spiritual condition that they have, this dullness. I would say that. Um, I'm going to skip to point three. Let's pick on this word impossible. The word, the word impossible is used uh, six times in scripture and I think three of them uh, three of them I think are in this passage and it talks about it's impossible to please God without faith that's one of them uh, I forget the other ones but it means not possible it doesn't mean something in between and there's not other places in scripture where it's fuzzy it means not possible so we can't fudge on that word impossible he's saying a word that is clear that he's meaning there's no possibility once enlightened this is a key phrase I think in other translations it might say then I'm not sure Dan you read in your translation it said then but once is a better is a good translation because it references time like at some point once they've been enlightened so these people knew the truth and were partakers of the new covenant through faith um, he's saying I think you can't go back to the provisions of the old covenant for their salvation once you've been enlightened it's like once you see a card trick you can't not see it <laughs> I mean the Old Testament's not a card trick but the Old Testament was a way that they could exercise their faith it was a shadow of things to come, but, the, but what was to come had not been revealed. But it's like, it's like once they see it, you can't unsee it. You can't unring that bell. And he's saying once you've been enlightened, you're in a different category when it comes to your salvation. That's his point. And uh, that, that word is, is a key, key word to this passage, I think. So these people knew the truth and were partakers in the new covenant. They cannot go back to the provisions of the old covenant for their salvation because now they are enlightened and would have no faith in the law. How could they have faith in the law once they were enlightened? There's, not, there's no possibility for them to go back. And so that's, that's the one half of this once. Can't go back to Judaism because now you know. You can pretend and you can be safe, but but it, you know that is not the means of your salvation. You can't unring that bell. I think this took me a long time, but that's, the, that's one of the key things that I began to see was, it's not like they could go back. The Old Testament, an untaught Jew was probably still saved at this time under, we don't know yet, but there's this process. I, I, but an unsaved Jewish person, an untaught person, would be relying on what they knew from the Old Testament until they heard the truth. But once they heard the truth, once they were enlightened by the Holy Spirit, there's no going back to that. It's dead to them. Okay. Um, falling away is another key word in there, a key phrase. Uh, which, Dan, could you read the, the verse that talks that says falling away? Um, in the verse uh, 4 and 5, Oh, actually, verse 6. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, 
and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age to come and then have, verse 6, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Okay, so then, so it's like he's, he's addressing the thing of going back. So we just talked about once you can't unring that bell, so Judaism doesn't really hold the means of their salvation anymore. anymore. So once they've been enlightened, once they've been a partaker, and then choose to go back, Judaism's no longer valid. And they're turning their back on the only means of salvation that they have. This puts them in a, well, we'll talk about that. Let's go on. Um, So to fall is not the same as falling away. The word fall away here is only used in this one time. There's no place else in scripture where to fall away is used. There are other places where fall is used, okay? And uh, I just want to make a point out here. It's not like somebody, um, it's not like somebody makes a mistake or even somebody's misguided or somebody uh, sins greatly. Let's drop down to point three there. Consider Peter who denied Jesus. You know, in one place, uh, Peter denied Jesus in the moment, but did not fall away. Okay, what's the difference? When Jesus came to him by the Sea of Galilee, Peter returned back to him. He persisted. He continued in the faith. He fell, he fell but falling is not falling away. And we're gonna get, I'm going to get to that. In Matthew, it says, in Matthew 10.33, top of the next page, it says, but Jesus says, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before the Father who is in heaven. Now, if you look at that straight up and had only that one verse, you would say that Peter denied the Lord, and the Lord was not going to acknowledge him before the Father, if you were just resting on that one thing. But in Matthew 26, he also, um, and Jesus even says to him, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me three times. And he uses the same word deny that he used in this, this warning, if you deny me. But we know from other scripture, Peter was restored. So denial is, is a, he fell, but he didn't fall away. He fell. And, there's, and what the distinction that's not so clear in the book of Hebrews is that there's a process of falling. There's a process of continued fall, fall, fall. And as we'll see when we get to that, it's a deliberate process. It's an intentional, not listening to the Holy Spirit and turning intentionally to something and we go back to it. So we can fall, fall, fall progressively and it has an impact on our spirit. And we're gonna, I'm gonna elaborate on that. But I wanna point out for those people who have used this scripture to feel condemned, like, oh, I failed the Lord, I fell, I, I denied him, I had a chance to witness for him and I didn't. I had someone ask me if I was a believer and I said no. This is almost equivalent to what Peter, no, he, in the moment he was fearful, in the moment he fell, but with, with thought or maybe the Holy Spirit, he comes back on the path and is restored. That is much, much different we're not talking about that. This is the normal Christian life. We fall and get up. We fail and get up. We even may have a habit. We may have something that is just something that we're struggling to overcome. The struggle itself is proof that we're not falling away. We are, we are back at it and we're trying again, you know? 
and that that's a big difference. So this is not a this is not a scripture to be discouraged about. This is a scripture he's encouraging them get up. If you just do your one thing, you stand here and you take what's coming, and God is going to fulfill His promise to you. That's true of all of us, no matter what we face. So, um, Jesus was talking about a momentary denial. Uh, Jesus was not talking about that. I said, He's not talking about it. He's talking about something different about that denial. Okay. I say, and I, I put these words together, to fall away involves persistent, deliberate, willful turning and not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that does something to us that we'll discuss in just a minute. I'm not going to say much about repentance because it's the straight up repentance meaning to turn back. So, I don't, we, and that's what he's saying. It's impossible to bring you to repentance. And I want to try to show why I think that's true. And then the thing about promise, most of chapter 6 is a carefully constructed proof that God will fulfill his promises. Okay, let's go to point F. Consider other warnings. And these are what I think are instructive about this passage in chapter 6. It's, you have to, we have to remember that what came before this, in, you know, they're reading this at one sitting, we're reading this in pieces, and we're studying it in pieces. But they would have had the truth that he was trying to uh, tell us was a warning. Oh, I need to, I need to drop down to um, do the second warning first, where Hebrews 3. I have these. I, I meant to cut and paste this, but I missed. Are you with me on a warning number, and number 2, Hebrews 3, 7 to 11? Well, I'm going to read that. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers 